<clears throat> in the beginning of practice, it seems like we have to make this tremendous amount of effort to apply some technique to our crazy mind uh, and uh, for some imagined or hoped for uh, goal, some spiritual goody. And while that may seem like the um, initial entry into the path, actually the path changes as we walk it. And in time we come to see, even as we have begun to see in this nine days of practice here, that there's this thing called momentum where the mind, uh, where the mindfulness becomes more continuous, uh, the faith becomes a little more steady, the energy is a little smoother, a little more persevering. Uh, we gather some understanding both of the practice, of our self, experience, and things, things flow a little smoother. And I'd like to talk tonight about the uh, practice of awareness as a lifestyle rather than kind of something we do for an hour a day. Because, in fact, the more we cultivate the qualities of wakefulness uh, in intentional practice, like retreats or an hour a day or whatever we do, the more, um, the more readily it is available or these qualities of heart are available to us in all of our activities of life. Saito Tejaniya acknowledges this when he says, we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom more as a marathon than a sprint. So, tonight I want to talk about um, awareness as the activity of the five spiritual faculties. Earlier in the retreat, in response to a question, I acknowledged that for the most part in this retreat, we will use the word awareness and mindfulness synonymously. Tonight I'm going to make the distinction, a distinction, just for the use tonight, of awareness as an activity of five spiritual faculties. One of those faculties is sati, or mindfulness. The five spiritual faculties are the faculties that are most responsible for the development of our practice. And they are first sada, which is usually translated as faith or a confidence. But I would like to suggest that rather than a noun, that we consider these mental factors more as capacities or abilities, more as verbs than nouns. So having faith is having confidence or it has the purpose or it has the, it manifests as clarifying our spiritual objective and supporting our aspiration to proceed with confidence. Virya is the second spiritual faculty, commonly translated as energy, but we know it as that persevering quality of mind that just doesn't give up, that just, just is ever-present moment after moment. So persevering, second quality of awareness. The third is sati, or mindfulness, but the function of mindfulness is to remember. So really, for our purposes, mindfulness means remembering. And I'll speak more about all these uh, faculties uh, this evening. The fourth is samadhi, or usually translated as uh, concentration or collectedness of mind. But both concentration or collectedness of mind has a stabilizing effect on the mind. So we can say that the fourth quality of awareness, or the fourth factor, uh, spiritual factor, controlling factor, is stability or stabilizing, collecting. And the fifth uh, factor is panya, 
or wisdom, and this is understanding. As we cultivate these five faculties, uh, they gradually grow, they gradually mature, become more familiar with them, and they grow incrementally in a cyclic development in a sequential way, in this way. With a little bit of faith, we're willing to make a little bit of effort. With a little bit of effort, we're going to remember a little more frequently. When we remember more frequently, we're going to collect the mind. And the Buddha said, the collected mind sees things more clearly, understanding. When we have some insight or some understanding or we get a glimpse of just how profound or accurate or useful the understanding of the Dharma is, then we feel more faith. We have more faith. We have more confidence in what we're doing and we're willing to make even greater effort. Greater effort results in more mindfulness. More mindfulness is greater stability of mind. Greater stability of mind sees more deeply into the way things are or the way things have come to be and we have more understanding. And this in turn fuels more faith and gradually these five faculties support one another to grow incrementally in a sequential way until they become mature and balanced. When that, or as that occurs, we can, we can begin to see more clearly that awareness is really this ongoing ability to recognize present moment's experience without reactivity and with uh, an understanding that allows us to respond in a wise and compassionate way. So the first of the faculties is sada or faith. The thing to understand about faith or sada, which is usually translated as faith, is that it is what is within the mind that seeks the good. It seeks the good in ourselves. It sees the good in others. It sees the good in practice. And so it is faith that encourages us to, when we hear the Dharma, we hear the Dharma and we, we say, wow, that's, yeah, that, that, that sounds right. That, that inspiring, that moves me to undertake some practice for my own good or to develop the good that's within me that, that gets activated, that gets resonated. And I, I saw this in, my own, in myself when I think I mentioned it, maybe I didn't, I don't know. I've mentioned it so many times I can't remember if I mentioned it here. Sorry if you've heard this story before, but <laughs> I was living in a commune in central Maine when I went to accidentally to my first retreat. And prior to going to this retreat, I didn't know anybody who was a meditator, didn't know any Buddhists. I had no interest in spiritual practice other than going to Grateful Dead shows with partaking of the sacrament. And um, that was my idea of a spiritual life. And went to the retreat. And of course, it was torture, like it is for anyone when you first get there. I set up back for two weeks. I'm not going to start with just a single hour lesson or class or even a weekend retreat. Go for two weeks. Might as well jump in and drown. So I sat up back, leaned against the piano, and the body was in total absolute misery, and the mind wasn't any better. Nevertheless, on the way back to the commune, I was acknowledging to my friend who went with me that when I heard the Dharma talks in the evening, it was as if I was hearing for the first time what I'd always known to be true. Even though I'd never read it, never heard it, didn't know anybody that believed it, but it had that resonance. And that was inspiring to me. That was like, wow, somebody somebody's knows something here. And that was the support. That was the fuel. That was the hook that got me to sign up to go uh, to a work retreat at the meditation center as soon as it opened and to be on staff and well here I am 40 years later 
it was really the awakening of faith. That, 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 that understanding just lit up the mind in a way, or lit up the heart, however you want to understand it, lit up the heart in a way that just gave me a sense of spiritual direction, encouraged me to move on it, move towards it, and gave me some confidence that I wasn't just floundering or taking a, you know, going into the ditch. And this is, these are, this is what faith does, this is what sadha does. Traditionally, they say the objects of faith are the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And in my own language, what it was is I felt like the practice of sitting still had all the answers. Of course, I didn't sit very still and I didn't get many answers, but nevertheless, I had that faith. So... It's been several years now, but Rodney Smith, another teacher in Seattle, who was on staff at the Meditation Center when I was there, he reminded me that on the f- one of the first days that I was on staff at the Meditation Center, we were upstairs in the attic over one of the dormitories, putting insulation in the ceiling to try to keep the place warm in the winter. I had done one retreat. We were having a discussion about Nibbana, and uh, as if I knew anything about Nibbana, I didn't know anything about Nibbana. And he, he reminded me that I exclaimed to him with utter and absolute confidence that I have no doubt that in this lifetime I will realize the Dharma. I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> but I had absolute faith that it would happen. And that's what faith is. You can have that kind of confidence, bright confidence, even if you don't know what you're talking about. It can be blind faith. Now, if you don't test it, if you don't put it to work, on practice and you just have that blind faith you can do some pretty foolish things faith is not wisdom okay faith is inspiration and so 40 years later I can say yeah I think I think I have an idea what the past about now and what the confirmed faith is verifying through 40 years of practice that it's worth the effort. More recently, the way I understand the seeking of the good that occurred to me at that time, and this was, I was not very informed, but I wasn't living a very purposeful life um, my mind was pretty dissipated and dispersed and really had no guiding principles other than Jerry. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I noticed over the ensuing years that I just cleaned up my act. I just stopped using and just started living a little more simply, a little more purposefully, got my energy together. And it wasn't like I suddenly became a real spiritual athlete, like, I'm going to do this and that. It just happened gradually with a little bit of practice. And being on the staff at the Meditation Center where I was within a community of like-minded people. And this may have been the most significant support for practice in the early years was having a connection with other people my age and with my interest uh, serving on the staff at the Meditation Center, and Carol was one of those people that I met as soon as I got on staff, along with Guy Armstrong and Michelle McDonald and Rodney Smith and others who have since all become teachers. So when we seek the good, we recognize what is not so good within our own minds, within our own hearts, within our behavior, our speech, and gradually sometimes with concerted effort and sometimes just through development of awareness, we put those things aside. We let go. But the second factor of, the second controlling factors is energy and what faith does or what this confidence does or what this direction on the spiritual path does, it draws forth the energy to manifest, to test your faith, really, 
to manifest the reality of practice in the world, in your own body and mind. It's not just a belief. Faith doesn't involve, it can involve some part of belief, but it's not solely belief. It requires action. But there's an interesting element to making effort. We can have faith and never be called to act on it unless there is some urgency. And it is said that the proximate cause for the arousing of effort or energy in practice is samvega. Samvega is spiritual urgency. So what is it that calls us to get off the treadmill, get off our butts, whatever it is, and get to a retreat, get to the cushion, do whatever it is we got to do to make an effort for our, towards our spiritual path or on our spiritual path. It is said that, you know, Prince Siddhartha, the, the Bodhisattva, who lived within the confines and the, 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 the orbit of his father's regal or royal palaces, when he left and went out into the surrounding villages or out into the city nearby, and he saw, meaning he understood, the nature of aging, sickness, and death, it moved him in some way. It called forth in him something that had lain, had lain dormant in this lifetime. It called forth this urge to understand, this urge to know. And once he realized that he too was subject or heir to aging, sickness, and death, that was not okay. And he was compelled to search for a solution, an answer to that kind of suffering. And that feeling he had is called samvega. Now, we, 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 we don't have to have make, be it, it doesn't have to be so dramatic in our own life. It can be very simple. All you have to do is uh, have a, a pet pass away, or have a good friend pass away, or have your uh, heart throb from your early adult years abandon you. And somehow you're left with this, well, you know, it's some kind of a just gaping emptiness inside yourself that needs to be listened to. And so we listen and we look and we realize, wow, there's more to life than what I have yet experienced. And how do you find that? Well, you go on this journey. You take this path to self-awakening. And somehow we've all been called to this path. Somehow we're all here. Somewhere in our past, something has called us. Something has said, take a look. This is, this is something you need to you need in order to understand or to, to live a fulfilling or meaningful life, to, um, you know. And for me it was after I'd been practicing for about 10 years, eight, nine years. I'd been doing retreats like this for nine years. And then I felt this, uh, I was 35, and I got this glimpse on retreat. One, one day, it just, you know, it just kind of came. Boom. It wasn't through thinking, it wasn't logic, it wasn't logical, it wasn't anything. It was just like an understanding. The way I was living was meaningless. It was just, I looked at my life, and I, mean, I was a contractor, I was a builder, and I looked at my life and I said, is this what I'm going to do the rest of my life? Build houses, make more money, get a newer car, get a little few more clothes, eat in a little better restaurants, and I, this is what I'm going to do. This is life. This is, this is the purpose of life. And believe me, it was not satisfactory. It was just, I just, I didn't have to debate. It wasn't a debate. It was just like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. And for me, the, the only thing that I saw that offered an alternative 
was to do more practice. Now, practice wasn't very good at that point. I still, I, even after 10 years, I didn't really get it. I, 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 my, my mindfulness was not anything to write home about. But I knew that so- something had happened from 10 years of practice, and so I decided and went to Burma. And I said, I want to I wanna practice till I don't want to practice anymore. Intensively. I want to practice intensively until I don't want to practice anymore. I want to live in a Buddhist country and I want to be a monk. So I had to go to Asia. Went to Asia not knowing how long or what. thought I would go to Thailand where I'd had friends go and spend a year or two as monks and, or nuns and practiced. Uh, but the only person I knew over there was Saito Pandita. He'd been to America the year before. So I went to Burma thinking I'll have see him, practice for a month or so, and then go to Thailand. Well, I got to the monastery and, and I stayed five years. Because I was practicing and it was very rewarding, it was fulfilling, it was purposeful, it was meaningful. Practice will call forth everything within you, if you want to keep practicing. You know, you have to be willing, as Upandita says, you have to be willing to invest everything of your life in practice. Well, I did, you know, and that, that was, he was, the, he was the type of teacher that could encourage me to make that investment. There was nothing else to do in life except practice. Wasn't easy, but with faith and this kind of urgency it was easy to make the effort. It is said that effort or energy manifests in our practice as non-collapse. You know what that means? This is a visual teaching, so you'll have to be watching me here. So we're going along, breathing in, breathing out, you know, thinking, thinking, ah, pain, pain. Oh, frustration, disappointment. At some point you go, that's collapse. It's just that. It's just the mind's mind's energy goes from, I see you, I see you, I see you, I can't stand it. (laughs) And it collapses. And at that moment we're vulnerable then to all the torments, all the defilements that just come flooding in and you know, doubt and fear and resistance and anger and irritation and all those things flood in and you've got a real challenge on your hand. But as long as there's that, you know, just a willing, a persevering willingness to acknowledge the present moment, as long as that's there, no matter what the experience is, you have energy. You have the right energy. It's just persevering. It's not to get rid of. It's not to make something. It's not to explain it, it's not to figure it out, it's not to judge yourself for it, it's just to, be, just to acknowledge it. It is really hard to get this understanding, to get this teaching. We can, we can tell you over and over and over again, but until you realize it through your own efforts, all you really need to do is just acknowledge the present moment, one moment after the other, and the rest will happen. Sounds impossible. Sounds like, how does that work? How does that work? Have faith. You know, make the effort. Balanced effort, you know. If you strive too hard, of course, you will get in your own way. It won't happen. I am reminded of, you know, when I was uh, early in my years of practice, I heard one of the senior, now senior, more senior teachers talking about this Chinese hermit monk. And I heard about this uh, Chinese monk who, who, for his practice, he would undertake a practice for 10 years. You know, first 10 years of anapana, watching the breath of the nostrils. Then 10 years of something else. Then 10 years of metta. Then 10 years of equanimity. And then 10 years of compassion practice. And 10 years of this and 10 years of that. And uh, he practiced until he was 80. And then he taught for 40 years. There's other rumors about this monk, but... It was very inspiring to me. Somehow, I mean, <laughs> sounds ridiculous, but it's very inspiring to me to think that, wow, you could just do 10 years of this, 10 years of that, 10 years of something else, to develop 
qualities of mind. That, that's the kind of person I am. That's inspiring to me, something like that. Isaito Tejaniya says, though, it's not difficult to be aware or mindful. It's difficult to maintain it continuously. And for that, you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. Another one of my teachers from the last century was Carlos Castaneda and his teachings from Don Juan. And he writes, Don Juan, that shaman from the Sonoran Desert there, Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now come to realize that I could work just the same in making myself complete and whole and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, Don Juan said, we either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. At some point we come to realize we have to work hard to make ourselves miserable. And we can use that same amount of effort to wake up. And the effort that we make in this practice is to cultivate, to arouse this factor of mind called mindfulness. Mindfulness is many things to many people, but the way I want to identify it tonight is to identify its function. The function of mindfulness, or the function of sati, that's the Pali word, the function of sati is to remember is to remember to be awake, to remember to acknowledge the present moment, to remember that you're alive, to remember to come out of the experience of your life and identify it. This is what's going on in this moment. And it can be in the big picture, we're sitting here listening to a talk. That's remembering the present moment. Or it can be just tuning into the subtleties of energies in the body or the subtleties of stream of thoughts in the mind. But it's remembering to recognize what your experience is. Now how do you, how do you remember? How do you remember to remember? Well, you plant the seed. I want, to be, I want to remember to be aware. And of course, you plant plenty of seeds and half of them don't grow. You know, they don't sprout and you're mindless, you don't remember a lot. But still those seeds are in the ground, they're in the mind, and they'll sprout sometime when the conditions are right. You'll be called to remember even when you aren't making the intention to remember. So what we're doing here is just cultivating the intention to remember. Sometimes we'll remember, sometimes we won't. But it's cultivating the intention. When we're able to Remember, the second quality of sati is the manifestation. Sati manifests in the present moment with observing. Sati remembers, it functions to remember, but once it remembers, it observes. And when it observes, it, it comes face to face. It, 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 it connects with, it touches the moment's experience. So there's two, two qualities in the, in the two factors of mind that get activated with mindfulness. The first is called um, touching. It's called, it's really where the mind, you bring the mind to touch the present moment or you let the present moment touch your heart. And then you sustain your attention on it. You let your attention feel into the present moment. This is observing. This is how we observe. We feel into the experience. The characteristic of sati, now I'm talking about the functions to remember, the manifestation is to observe, the characteristic of it is intimacy. It doesn't just superficially just kind of glance off the experience, it doesn't just superficially kind of blow it off. 
it actually becomes intimate. It encourages this intimacy to, to really deeply touch, deeply feel into our experience. And the proximate cause for sati, or the that which gives rise to sati, is having an object to attend to, having clear perception, which is clearly feeling and recognizing what the quality of this object is, and it's also to, um, it's also conditioned by prior mindfulness. So if in one moment you're mindful, you're more likely to be mindful the next moment. And if the mind, if there is clear perception, if you clearly taste the flavor of this moment, then that clarity of perception will support the continuity of mindfulness in the next moment. So this is how mindfulness works. It remembers to recognize the present moment. It observes the present moment with enough sustaining or enough, enough interest to actually become intimate and feel into that object. And the continuity of mindfulness is supported by having an object to attend to, prior mindfulness, and the clarity of that perception. Now, what is so personal about that? You know, we think, oh, I'm not very mindful. That, that's just not accurate. Or I can't do this. That's not accurate. Mindfulness is like, it's just a factor of mind. It's like a muscle in the body. It's a muscle in the mind. If you work that muscle, it will grow in strength. If you work this muscle of remembering, it will grow in strength. It's not a matter of, can you do it, can't you do it? The effort, the effort is to be willing to try it. If you're willing to do it, the causal conditions will be met and the effect of mindfulness will result. There's no one that cannot develop mindfulness. It's just not, it's, it's not, it's not a personal deficiency. It's a capacity of the mind that can be cultivated and developed. After I'd been in Burma for a couple of years, I was doing my practice, or maybe it was in the first year, I can't remember really, but I'd been practicing for some, some time. I was practicing and, you know, you just get into a routine, it's just sit, at, the, at this particular monastery, it was sit and walk, alternate hours, 20 hours a day. And they weren't kidding. As Upandita said, you can sleep all you want between 11 and 3. <laughs> we expect you up at 3, sitting and walking for alternate hours till 11 at night. That was, when, that was on day one. Okay. So, that's what I was doing. And after a few months, you know, you get, you get into the routine and you just do it. <laughs> You're not looking for anything special, you just do it. And I remember I was walking on the back hallway of a dormitory I lived in, a little bungalow dormitory. I was walking on the back alleyway and I was walking from that direction to that direction which was towards the bathroom. And I remember at some point seeing something in my experience, feeling something that I'd never seen before, never felt before. And so it really stopped me like, wow, what is this? And I didn't know what it was at the time, but it was the collapse of energy. You know, I was going along, going along. Something went, something went through my mind and I just gave up. Boom. I thought, wow, what's happened? I was going along, going along. Something came through my mind. Boom. And when I looked at what was actually going on, this was over the course of, you know, some walking and some hours. of, and I started to notice that when this thought went through my mind, I collapsed. Oh, poor me, I can't do this because dot, dot, dot. Fill in the blank. And, you know, I'm going along doing it. And then just, just, it's just, it just an assumption or something just whiffs through the mind, invisible. Oh, poor me, I can't do this because I'm too old. Oh, poor me, I can't do this. I'm too stupid. Oh, poor me, I can't do this. I'm not Burmese. Oh, poor me, I can't do this. You know, I don't know. Uh, you know, I did too many drugs. Oh, poor me, I really can't do this. I didn't do enough drugs. <laughs> oh, poor me, I can't do this. You know, and it was just, 
every time it would go through, I would just collapse. So I came to recognize this as self-pity. That's what I'm calling it. It might be really something else for all I know, but really, what I call it is self-pity. It's like, oh, poor me. Oh, poor me. <laughs> I got so <laughs> adamant about catching that state of mind that every time it would just barely, barely poke its head up into my awareness, I was on it. And I wouldn't let it get a toehold in my mind. Because if you see it, it's just, there's a thought, there's an assumption, there's a belief. You're mindful, you're mindful, you're mindful. You're not buying into it. You're not believing that story. You're seeing it. You're aware of it. Mindfulness remembered, remembered to recognize in an intimate way, consistently, every time that appeared. And I noticed it and noted it, took note of it for some period of time. Whether it was a week or a month, I have no memory. But I haven't seen it in decades. And that doesn't mean that life hasn't offered me plenty of opportunities to feel self-pity. Plenty. But it doesn't, it doesn't have a toehold in the mind. The mind is so alert to it, so attuned to it, so familiar with that feeling of what it feels like. It doesn't, it, doesn't get any, it doesn't get any toehold in the mind. This is how mindfulness purifies the mind. This is how mindfulness and insight into the nature of self-pity is eventually uprooted from the mind. And you can do it with anything, any state of mind, any feeling, any, any assumption, any belief you have about yourself. Because they're not true. And we have some pretty tenacious beliefs. We have some pretty tenacious assumptions. We have a lot of misinformation about ourselves. And only mindfulness is going to reveal it to you in a way that you can really see it, arrest it, and uproot it. That's what mindfulness does. Mindfulness is not trying to make something happen, or trying to get rid of self-pity. It wasn't trying to get rid of self-pity. It was just like, I see you. I see you. I see you. It's just wanting to be present. I didn't try to figure it out. I didn't try to explain it. I didn't go to back to my family of origin and f- see who caused it. Well, I did, but... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't believe that one either. But, you know... We, this, is, this is how we get diverted and distracted by what mindfulness shows us. We explain it, we figure it out, we blame somebody, we assume it's true. We, we pick it up and play with it. We don't just see it, see it, see it, until it leaves of its own accord. As we make the effort. As we remember more frequently the pace of the pace of remembering and being mindfully aware increases. You know, I told the story, I think I mentioned uh, the story, maybe in a group or maybe here. You know, when when you're a beginner and you sit down and you try to pay attention to the breath, you know, you or or whatever it is you're paying attention to, you know, you have beginner's luck and you you can exclaim with great delight in your first interview or first check-in, hey, I sat down and my mind only wandered three times. Yeah, but on the ninth day of retreat, you know, with a lot more experience and a lot more momentum to your mindfulness, you sit down and your mind wanders 45 times. And you think, oh, jeez. You know, but actually, the mind wandered the first time for 15 minutes each time. Okay. So what happens is, the longer the wander, right, the greater the restlessness. It is remembering more frequently that will expose more, well, wandering, wandering mind. So it, as the mind becomes more, more continuously mindful, so that we're noticing wandering mind 45 or 90 times a, mi- a, a sitting rather than just three times, then 
we, we, we see that the, the, the capacity of the mind to remember and to observe becomes increasingly stable. It's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, moment after moment, object after object, present, present, noticing, noticing. Subjectively, the experience is one of calming the mind down. Because when the mind wanders, when the mind goes off thinking and you're not aware of it, then it's, it's distracted, it's agitated, it's, it's dispersed, it's, you don't know where it is, but it's having, it's having a field day. And it's, you know, and when you recover your stability of mind or you recover some mindfulness, you feel dissipated and strung out and bothered and sometimes the shadow of the emotional drama that you've been involved in is lingers for minutes, if not hours. But when, when you catch those moment after moment after moment after moment, the mind gets collected. It's as if every time the mind wanders away and you see it, you just kind of bring it back, bring back that little piece of mind, hold it right here. And then it wanders again and you bring that back and you hold it and you bring that back and you bring it back. And instead of wandering far and wide and you've got to reach a long way to get it, it's just as soon as they start to escape the, escape the present moment, you just, you just nudge it back. Just come on back, come on back, come on. Don't, don't go anywhere, don't go anywhere. Just stay right here. Just notice this, notice this. Instead of going like off into the catalog of future desires and pleasures, you know. One of my favorite poets, Galway Canal, he says, you know, we're always looking for paradise elsewhere. Looking for happiness in paradise elsewhere. And that's what the mind does. It's not happy here. It wants to go into the future, into a new set of clothes, a new person, a new relationship, a new place, something. A different sitting. <laughs> and so the practice of, of mindfulness is to notice that, bring it back, notice it, bring it back, notice it, bring it back, notice it, bring it back. And eventually, the mind gets collected. And when the mind's collected, it feels stable. And when the mind is stable, it's comfortable, it's at ease, it's, it's, it's present, it's soft, it's, it's able to recognize everything that's going on, moment to moment to moment to moment to moment. This is called samadhi. Samadhi or concentration, or stability of mind. Concentration sounds like a lot of effort. <laughs> stability of mind just sounds like the mind is just there. Now, the interesting and kind of counterintuitive um, fact about samadhi is that the proximate cause for samadhi, that which most supports samadhi, is happy comfort of mind and body. It's not striving. It's not holding on. It's not narrowing your focus. It's not making a huge effort. It's relax. Relax the body, relax the mind. Let the body be comfortable. Let the mind be happy. And that's what brings the mind to the present moment and just stays here. This is, a, this is hard to believe. <laughs> for almost all of us. And it's hard to rely on because we don't believe it. We think, if I relax, I'm not going to be mindful. On the contrary. If we relax and don't struggle and are willing to acknowledge the present moment from a place of ease in the body and not striving in the mind, the mind's quite happy to be present. It's when you push the mind, you struggle, you strangle the mind, you twist the mind or shove the mind to do what you want it to do, to get what you want it to get. But the mind goes, oh no, wait. And you don't feel any calmness, you don't feel any stability, and you can't keep your mind on what you're doing. Because the mind's not happy, the body's not comfortable. So the proximate cause is something that you want to really attend to for this um, stability of mind. Collectedness of mind occurs when the mind is not scattered. Restlessness is the direct opposite of samadhi. Restlessness in this case is not just this agitation of the body when you have too much caffeine or sugar. That's not, what it, that's not restlessness in, in the way we use it in, uh, in, in practice. It, restlessness is the mind thinking without you being aware of it. We call it the wandering mind. Of course, the mind doesn't wander anywhere. It just thinks. It stays right here and just thinks, and we don't know it. 
That's restlessness. Mindfulness is the direct antidote and collectedness is the direct result of non-restlessness. The reason that collectedness is so important or so necessary or why people are, you know, when people evaluate their practice wrongly from what they assume should be happening, they say, I'm not very concentrated. Well, if you're trying to, if you're trying to get concentrated, of course, that's trying too hard already. But the collectedness of the mind is what sees things more clearly. So it's like this. If I hold up my hand from where you are and I say, what do you see? Well, you see my hand. You know, and I say, well, get a little closer. You know, if you came up close, you'd look and say, okay, now I can see four fingers and a thumb and I can see the, the lines on your palm. Okay, and I get a little closer. And you look a little closer and say, wow, you've got some scars there. <laughs> you've, you've been whacking your fingers and cutting your fingers and okay, okay. And then you take a piece of tissue and you look under a, a magnifying lens and you look at that and you see more details than you ever knew before. And then you take a piece of tissue and put it under a microscope and what you're looking at doesn't look like anything like a hand. Right? It doesn't. And yet you now know much more about what you were seeing from a distance. Getting closer is like collecting the mind to make the mind more powerful. The mind becomes more powerful as it gets stable and collects. And so we're look, while we're looking at the same old experience, breathing in, breathing out, lifting, moving, placing your feet, thoughts in the mind, what's it feel like to sit? We're looking at the same thing over and over and over again. But as the mind is more stable or the mindfulness is more continuous, we see these very familiar, ordinary, mundane, repetitive things with much more understanding. But we have to be willing to bear with the boringness of, I've been here, I've seen this. How many times do I have to watch the breath? I'll tell you, until you die. <laughs> and then there's no more breath to look at, you're off the hook. Okay? Really, it's not, it's not the object that's important. I hope you've gotten that by now. The objects are going to change endlessly. Or you can stay on one object is all you want. It's the quality of mind that results from the continuity of mindfulness, the collectedness of the mind, and the understanding that is revealed through the collectedness of see- from that seeing with a collected mind. So seeking more variety in spiritual experiences or spiritual practices is not going to get you where you want to go. There's a whole smorgasbord of spiritual practices out there to dabble in, but you're not going to get a satisfying meal off the smorgasbord. You really need to sit down to a meal of a single practice, a single tradition, whether it's a single teacher or not, and get to the bottom of it until you're nourished with the Dharma. That's what the collected mind can reveal. That's the fifth factor. The fifth faculty is wisdom, understanding, panya. It's the ability to see deeply the unique nature of this object, of this experience. The uniqueness of this experience. This moment's experience isn't like any other experience you've ever had or ever will have again. We think it's the same old breath. We think it's the same old pain in the shoulders. We think it's the same old emotional drama. We think it's the same old self-judging thoughts. It never is. But we won't know that until we pay close attention. And the close attention, the close attention is the continuity of mindfulness that collects the mind and sees things as they truly are in that moment. Not as how you remember them to be. Not as how you hope them to be. But as how they really are. And then something really magical happens. When, you're, when the mind is stable and you're able to be with this moment's experience, it may be pleasant, it may be unpleasant. It may be familiar, it may be novel. It may be 
gross, it may be subtle, it may be physical, it may be mental, it may be emotional, it may be whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Did you get that? It doesn't matter what the object is. What matters is the care, the precision with which you connect with it and sustain your attention on it, feel into it intimately, and see its characteristics. Feel its characteristics. Recognize its characteristics. Every moment has its own unique flavor. Right? Fear is different than joy. Joy is different than love. Love is different than depression. Depression is different than pain. Pain is different than pleasure. Pleasure is different than happiness. Okay? They all got their unique flavor. But they all have a few things in common. They all arise due to causes and conditions. They last for a moment and they disappear. And no matter what it is that you've ever experienced, you will see it goes away. Not because you can't remember it, not because you didn't really notice it at the time, but because you see it, you see it come together, you see it for a moment, and you see it disappear. That knowledge, that self-verified knowledge is invaluable. Invaluable. The Buddha said, better than a life of living according to the precepts, better than a life of developing loving kindness for all beings for decades, better than any of that, those practices is a single moment of seeing impermanence. And why is that so important? Because when you see whatever arises Last for a moment, disappears. What are you going to hold on to? When you know that it disappears. You know it disappears. So we let go. We're not holding on. We let go. We're willing to experience the loss of everything we've ever known, everything we ever feel, everything that we're ever going to feel. We're willing to see it come, see it go, feel the loss, and be ready for the next moment. This is why Vipassana practice is called learning how to grieve effectively. Because every time you see the disappearance of this present moment, there's a loss. That loss has to be grieved for you to be able to take in a next moment. If you don't, if you don't grieve effectively and let that loss be known, you're not available for the next moment until you learn to grieve effectively, then you can live in the present moment. That's just the first insight of wisdom. The second is the truth of dukkha. First noble truth, the Buddha said, all conditioned things have the characteristic of dukkha. They're either painful in and of themselves, and we know those. Slam your finger in the door, painful. You know, feel, lose something, you feel sad, painful. We know physical pain, we know emotional pain, we know mental pain. It's obvious. This is unsatisfactory. We don't want that kind of experience. They come, but we don't want it. We're not going to hang on to that if we can help it. But dukkha has another meaning. It is, it refers to the fact that things change. So whatever it is you're relying on, for your happiness and your stability, whether it's your bank account, your career, your partner, your possessions, or your spiritual attainment, it's going to change. Unavoidably, it's going to change. Franz told the story of being caught in the tsunami a couple nights ago. We all have a tsunami headed for us. It's a total disruption of our life. It might be a, a, a diagnosis the next time you go to your doctor. It might be the financial collapse of the market. It might be your partner saying goodbye. It might be anything that you can't bear to think of right now. But, hey, we can't prevent it from happening, can we? Wow, when you really see that things are changeable. They're unreliable. They're unstable. They're not able to offer you the security and the protection you crave for your self-existence. It's not possible. What is it you're going to hold on for? What is it you're going to rely on for security? 
when you see this, when you see and you understand, this is the characteristic of all conditioned phenomena. You don't hold on. Just like when you see that they're impermanent, you don't hold on. When you see that they're, they're unstable, you don't hold on. Let things go. You learn to grieve. Oh, grieve, grieve. Let it go. I don't mean push it away. I just mean taste this moment of life. You can't have the same meal twice. Okay? The third characteristic that we see, the third insight, third Vipassana insight into all conditioned phenomena is that it comes together due to causes and conditions, it leaves. It has no inherent substance. It is, it is just made up of other things which are all made up of other things. You know, this thing called me is just made up of mind and body, memories, plans, expectations, hopes, fears, desires, you know, attachments, avoidance, fear, you know, that's all it is. And when you see these things are just bubbling through, arising due to their own causes and conditions, and you can't hold on to them, you don't, you don't try to. You don't try to hold on and create a stable sense of self in the midst of ever-fluxing change of the body and mind. Why bother? What a struggle. It's impossible. So you let things come, you let things go. You don't own them. You don't claim them. They're not yours. They're not who you are. None of them. When you see this about all experience, all conditioned things, they're impermanent, they're unsatisfactory, they're insubstantial, they're evanescent. What do you hold on to? What is the mind going to hold on to when it knows it's impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, it's painful, it's evanescent, it's, it has no substance? When the mind is really at ease with these understandings, total equanimity with these understandings, not resisting the pain, not resisting the instability, not resisting the insubstantiality of all things, then... When the mind is at that balanced, non-reactive space, maybe the mind will fall into the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is nibbana. And that's the end of suffering. That's what the Buddha is pointing to, the third noble truth. From insight, from this understanding, it's not a spiritual goodie. It's not an experience like joy, bliss, happiness, pleasure. It's not that. It's the end of suffering. It can only be accessed through this total non-reactivity to the truth of things. Really coming to know deeply, this is the way things have come to be in every moment. Not holding on, immediately grieving the loss of it, being available for the next moment. This understanding comes through the development of these five faculties. A life of awareness will bring you to this understanding. And if you're lucky, maybe you'll fall into the unconditioned. You can't, you can't make it happen. It's unconditioned. It's not caused by anything. As Trungpa says, you know, enlightenment is an accident. Practice makes you accident prone. <laughs> when your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values and life will change. When your values change, your priorities change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more, and this will help you to do well in life. So let's sit for a moment and let these words quiet down.
There's nothing more interesting than using the Dhamma in your daily life, Sayadaw Tejaniya says. But people don't use the Dhamma that much in daily life because they don't know the quality, the value, and the inherent worth of the Dhamma. Someone who really practices in daily life will know the value of this practice as something you can't live without. So think of your home as a retreat center. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. There's about a half hour for further awareness practice. And then, if you're interested, there'll be further awareness practice here in the sitting posture. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.